Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Yvette. She has been a called or she has been called your go-to person for the perfect blend of creativity, insight, and ability to, co- to connect. Yvette is a speaker, artist, re- researcher, and personal innovation mentor, founder of Web Antiphone. That's it. Web Antiphone. Oh, yes. Good. <laughs> yay, me. Uh, group. I was like, what? Okay. Um, author <laughs> of Why Brand Risk Man- Management Innovation is a Game Changer. And I'll link that book up in the show notes for everybody to grab a copy if they're interested. And creator of the Empowered Innovation System. She serves conscious leaders looking for outside the box thinking with vision and wisdom to drive triple bottom line success profit people planet. Well, I'm all down for the planet. Yes. Come on. Let's save this. <laughs> right. Somebody please. <laughs> <laughs> so for more than two decades, Yvette has been, or has built a reputation as a big picture thinker and social innovator that knows how to drive short-term goals without letting what matters most fall by the wayside. She is also an artist researcher in residence coordinating the WE, the World Freedom Campaign and founding director of the WE Freedom Film Fest. As part of this collaboration on uh, Martin Luther King um, Jr. Day 2021, she launched a Cure for Racism, hallelujah, uh, project powered by Empowered Innovation System. Um, Yeah, can we cure racism? That's going to take a lot of work. Um, no doubt about that, but, uh, I just put out the book based on, for the same initiative. So this is all to fund the freedom campaign, which would support, um, doing more of this work, um, and making the work sort of like freely available, doing more of it. Um, you know, the people who have the money, of course, can pay and those who don't, you know, having that kind of setup for things, um, and promoting um, the civic ed- education and some of the other initiative, paid internships. Um, Hallelujah and, for paid internships. Right? That's been um, such an issue. <laughs> and so, yeah, right? And so it's one of the things that, uh, yeah, I want to develop some paid internships. And specifically, I'd like to develop some paid internships around our podcast um, initiative, um, which is very much about, because um, I've been mentoring young people lately, um, teaching them that they have a voice mm-hmm. and to use it and showing them where their power is. And I, we were talking before about like having a social media manager and, you know, I'm not really great at that sort of stuff. Um, too busy living my life to tell everybody about it. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I sort of wouldn't want to bother unless I had I'm very much about giving people not just information, but con- con- putting information in context to empower them. Um, and I realized since he sends me stuff and I give him like, okay, put this into a carousel, which would have been an article or blog post. But again, not great about doing that either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. I used to have a blog and I don't do that. Right. 
Um, and so there's like some article stuff. And so I've been working on setting up some systems to get more mileage out of things. And so this initiative is the first part of that. Um, so the book was based on, I started with a transcript of one of the webinar trainings that I had done for a group after the George Floyd murder. I got some requests to, um, I think it was something I talked about like within the WE team for like the human rights campaign. And so I got some other invitations to present and share it during the 11 days of global unity, which was when you had our short film, our virtual short film festival. And um, I was uh, disappointed, you know, I was really disappointed. Um, and so the book sort of came from that disappointment. Um, and I start out with telling a story about um, an experience with racism that I had, you know, recently with a colleague and how hurtful it was and how when I, you know, I produce this what this workshop in response to what I was hearing from people because on the one hand I didn't want to necessarily have the conversations but um, I did feel like I understood this enough to be able to teach and, and share something of value that could actually help people and so I had to do my own work you know yeah. um, to get there and um, it was like fighting for hope you know, it was really a journey in fighting for hope. And so the book was a little bit about, um, I have fought for hope and now I've put it all inside of this balloon and I'm just going to let it go and <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, Cause it's kind of like when you, like with art, like this is all part of my, my this uh, sort of a an idea of a Renaissance art innovation or art led social innovation, you know, sort of art Renaissance type thing. Um, but for the public good, redefining and getting people to reconsider like public art as prototyping um, and engaging people at that level of whatever it is that you really love, that you want to put your all into, do your best at, that makes you feel like you are connected to your reason for being here. That's where I want to engage with people and collaborate. So it's bringing that bit of my artist practice to everything that I do. So I explained that a little bit in the book. Um, I present this framework that I developed that my system's based on. It's called the soul food framework where we talk about um, racism as an ingredient. And so the cure for racism is basically with the campaign fundraising page. It's like, this is the test kitchen. You know, this is like officially I'm opening it. Like the private test space is my studio. The public side test space is this, the pub, this test kitchen. So, um, if racism is a poisonous ingredient and it is the secret ingredient in a cuisine based on a culture of white supremacy. And the only way that ingredient gets added is when we bring it. So the work is to remove it from ourselves because that's the only way it can be in our systems. And until we do that, there's not gonna be any significant legislative change. There's not gonna be big policy changes because the heart and soul, you can't legislate that. And the fear, the deep, fear that drives this is not something that can be legislated because it's not something people are being honest about. Um, you know what I'm saying? And oh, so yeah. racist all the time. We'll be like, I'm not racist. How dare you call me a racist? And I'm just like, did you hear what you just said? Like what you said was racist. 
Well, like uh, when you look at the Georgia, when when Governor Kemp was signing that law, now the way they pushed this law through was not the normal pr- process. Yeah. There was no opportunity for community input. Right. There was and you're no talking opportunity about the voting for it laws. to be debated. Yes, the voting yeah. laws. When they were doing this, they pushed this through late at night. They're signing this bill like at around midnight or something in a locked office. They have this other rep- this black woman representative arrested for knocking on the door. And right. I think her arm was injured in that rough handcuff, you know, escort job they did with her. Um, but when the, the, this, the, the, what do you call it? The, the photo op of the bill signing, six white men, six older white men, middle-aged and older mm-hmm. white men standing, signing this Jim Crow 2.0 bill with a slave plantation painting above them. Yeah. As if that didn't say like volumes. You know what I mean? Like that right. was, that was movie worthy staging. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And if you so, asked them, they'd probably be like, I'm not racist. This bill well, that was immediately racist. what he said right after that. Yeah. That's immediately what he we're, said. we're yeah. just, we're just trying to fight that imaginary voter, like uh, the voter fraud. fraud that doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Um, and we're not going to discuss all the times. The other thing is that this has historical precedent. Whenever this has happened, they've never said that these laws were for targeting um, Black people or people of color or anything. But it was definitely meant to disenfranchise poor and working people. Yep. People who don't have control over their schedules, who have limited amount of time, and don't have jobs that will pay them to leave to go vote. Mm-hmm. And those are the people that this really penalizes. So although a majority of them may be Black, it's really targeting poor workers who are voting against that kind of agenda that right. is not looking out for workers and workers' issues and the issues of the working poor. And I think that there is a real need for solidarity, even if you are not somebody who's living that kind of, you know, like that sort of struggle. Right. Um, and even if you don't know anybody, if you don't know anybody who is, Get to talk to people when you go out and they're doing your, you know, whatever services people are providing to to you. I was poor (laughs) forever. Like I did, I I mean, I'm I'm You know what I heard you talk about that? Like until I was in my mid-20s. Yeah, I I worked service jobs. (coughs) I did not make a lot of money. Like, I mean, it wasn't until I married my husband who has a really good job that I ever lived this kind of life. I mean, we're still middle class, but I mean, compared to where I was growing up, this is like, this is like rolling in the dough. But I mean, people could talk to me because I know what it's like to be, I know what it's like to be on welfare. I was on welfare. I was a teen mom. I'm not ashamed of it, right? you know, Um, but I will tell you, I would never have been given time off to go vote. Like I would have had to take the time off to vote. You mentioned being a teen mom. And so you were a single mom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that uh, we, we've talked about, like, um, in, I've been ga- engaging feminist um, in and for a long time is the issue that when you look at women in other countries are not afraid of having children by themselves because it does not mean they are more at risk for being homeless like it does here. Right. And that those kinds of things when people would do the weird number one, it's like, do you actually know anything about other countries? Because if you did, I don't think you would say that. And that we all have to care and think that that is a worthwhile investment. And I don't buy into this whole idea of, um, you know, that welfare is somehow like there's no return on investment there. There no, absolutely really, yeah. is. Yes. There is an investment to allowing parents to raise their children and not be homeless and go hungry. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean that like, so anyway, so I feel like there needs to be more solidarity. Um, when I talked to, I remember when I first talked to a housekeeper um, in, in a hotel and realized that the person that was cleaning my room that day wasn't going to be the one that got the tip. If I tipped at the end of the week, oh, you know, because wow. a lot of times, um, because the, the ATM machines are like so expensive in hotels. Yeah. Like they charge you $5, like it was like $5.25 to get cash out. And I'm sorry, like, that's a lot of money. You know, I mean, like, if I keep going down because I do like to tip people, you know, yeah. in hotels. So um, in a pinch, I have done it. And I really regretted it because I ended up spending like $60 in ATM fees during the week um, because I probably should have gotten a bigger sum out the first time, but I didn't know how much I was going to need. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, So I started tipping at the end of the week when I would leave. And then I was talking to her one day because I happened to be in the room and I was like, do you mind if I don't leave (laughs) um, right away and I'll like leave when you need to get in here. And so she did like the rest of the suite and um, uh anyway we just ended up chatting and then she told me like oh like that I'm not going to be here Friday I was like oh really so you don't clean like um oh okay so I gave her her tip then and after that you know like okay I need to tip the person each day so the person's cleaning the room that day and I also didn't realize um how much they had to do in such a, a small amount of time like that right. they had to do like floors of room jobs to understand what's involved in making you comfortable. Um, yeah. And it hurts my feelings. It hurts my heart when people tell me how people talk to them. Um, there was so this one rude. hotel I used to stay at all the time and um, people would like hug me and be so happy to see me that the people in the back office were like, okay, I just had to come and meet you because everybody's talking about you being here. Like, who are you? And what are you, you know, like, I was like, whoa, what? (laughs) And my husband would comment, like when he went without me, everybody would be like, oh, where's your wife? Oh, you didn't bring her. Where's Mrs. (laughs) Dubell? Um, And he thought it was amazing because he thinks, you know, he felt I was demanding and very picky about a lot of, my daughter says I'm very specific about a lot of things. Um, but I'm also extremely grateful to the people that helped me with those things. Um, so anyway, I think it's just that. So like I would, for years, that was like my favorite hotel. Then they brought in a manager who was an AO and wasn't nice to them and was racist and people started leaving. So um, I don't go back there anymore. <laughs> Speaking of your husband, it's a, it's a little off topic. You yeah. have an interesting first, like you're, ah. the, yes. Can you share with us the interesting first and what that meant? Like what kind of treatment maybe you got being the first? Um, okay. So what we're talking about is when we got married, uh, it was reported that I was the first black woman to register a marriage to a white man in Pitt County, North Carolina. And um, when we went, I don't think they thought it was legal. Um, oh I, they had never seen anything like it. Um, they went and got, I happened to have known who the county of clerks was because when I was in high school, um, a couple of years before this, I worked at a Waffle House and she and her husband, who was a police officer, used to come in a lot. So I knew who Annie was and her name is on my marriage license. Um, but they went and got her. She was like the register, like the deed of clerks or something. So they went and got her and there's just like this sort of like congregating in the back and they're all sort of like, and I think that, the, and I told my husband, like, I don't think they think it's legal. 
I think that they went to go ask her, like, can we do this? Like, can they do this? Yeah. And this was only 30 um, years ago, just for context. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This was uh, 1990. Right. So this was like, uh, yeah, it wasn't that long. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, I think that things have gotten better. I mean, like now we don't rent. So I don't know what that would be like. But um, by the time we got married, um, actually, I don't think before we were married even, but when we were, okay, before we got married, I was a little more defiant about this. But what I was wondering, what I'm referring to is getting a place to live. Nobody would want to rent us if we came together. And I started to, um, despite how polite and friendly people seemed, I started to suspect that that was what it was. And he didn't think that that was what it was. And um, I was like, well, you go by yourself and see what happens. He thought it was a coincidence. So it's like, all right, whatever. And then the next place after that was like a cool place. And that guy was cool. So um, I met him and he was fine. And, but when we moved to Georgia after we were married, it became a thing again. And so um, basically I was like, look, dude, you just do it. I'll go separately and like look at the place and not put in an application or anything. And then just you go back and like, you know, put in an application and um, that worked every time. But if we went together, um, and eventually, you know, like when you, your lease is almost up and you don't really have time to mess around, um, to like make a point. And it's like, I know you don't want to think that people are racist. Um, but you know, so that was like a weird thing. Like he was, he's from New Jersey. Yeah. My husband. And so he was, um, I feel like a lot more naive and in denial a lot, lot longer about the amount of racism that was tolerated. Yeah. I'm from um, upstate New York, originally like Canada adjacent I was like that as well (laughs) okay um yeah so he just didn't see it the way that I did he you know we'd have these experiences when my kids were young my son just recently found a a picture of me when I was in my 20s and he said why is it when you're angry you look like you did in your 20s and um do you mind if I I'm gonna say what I said this isn't a family text actually yeah um (laughs) I said because um, I had to look like I was already always ready to like, like kick somebody's ass in case something I said popped off. Cause you know, um, there was a difference, you know, before I might, when my hair was straight, it was interesting the things that people would feel like they could come up and say to me. And I don't know if it was really the hair, but my, I used to have really long dreadlocks, but I've been wearing them short for like the last seven or eight years. But um, something about the dreadlocks, probably it was me. It was something about what that was for me, making that decision that changed. But um, when people were staring at us, for example, or something, I would stare back. And then if they continued to stare, I was like, you have something you need to say? And they might be two aisles over and my kids would be like so mortified. (laughs) If we were in a restaurant and like somebody was staring at us, I was like, you got a problem? You want to take a picture? It'll last longer. Um, you know, I was like, I, and so I became like very confrontational. Um, yeah, uh, because I don't know, there's just something about like when you have kids that, um, I guess I also wanted them to understand that when confronted with somebody else's racist expectation of you, subjugation is not your only option. You know, you can absolutely challenge that. Mm-hmm. And I find that very few racists will say the racist shit to your face. Right. And when confronted with any sort of pushback on the narrative that they present, most of them will not stand up and justify their position. 
Um, so I think that because, yeah, I think that, you know, being in the South where if you went too far out of Atlanta, it was a whole different world and you knew mm-hmm. it. There's still um, sundown towns. My daughter and I were talking about this. She's like, mom, did you know there's sundown towns? I'm like, yeah. I was like, if you go near one, I mean, as a white girl, it's not going to bother her, but people will tell you like, uh, uh, you know, people of color will tell you, I can't be in that town after night. Like I, I just when can't. I go to any place and I don't, what I noticed when I was traveling was because of this sort of racialized condition, conditioning, I, my, and my, at my, in my nervous system, um, the absence of black people or people of color um, triggers and triggered anxiety was perceived as um, unsafe. Right. There's no people of color. And I remember being up um, north of Cummings. I'm not sure exactly, but we were in the Cummings area, Cummings, Georgia, um, somewhere between Cummings and Duluth. And I started to really have an anxiety attack because there were just like all these Confederate flags. I wasn't seeing any people of color at all. And I'm with my white husband and he's not taking this seriously at all. And like, my heart is pounding. Um, And when I saw the Chinese Cultural Center, oh my God, I have never been so happy. And he was just like, why are you happy to see that? And I was like, Chinese people might not love black people, but they don't fucking try to kill us. Right. Um, and if there's Chinese people here, there's some degree of tolerance in this, you know, in this area. And there's probably a lot more Chinese people. There may be more Chinese people than white people if they have a cultural center that's this gorgeous. Um, so it was like all of that in like a couple of seconds, you know. Um, and so we were looking for this restaurant. And so when we get there and I see um, um, an Asian gr- a group of Asian people, I think they were family, coming out together. And I was like, yes okay, we'll go here. Let's go here and get something to eat. And he's like, how do you know this is going to be okay? It's like, there's Chinese people here. There's black people here. <laughs> In this neck of the woods? Yeah. Um, Cause where else would they be? Um, right. And I find the same thing is true. Like if, um, Gettysburg, like if you go like go around that area of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, you find a Chinese buffet or a Chinese restaurant, there's going to be some, you know, diversity. Um, which is interesting because that's not necessarily so if you go to like a Middle Eastern restaurant, <laughs> it'll be all white people. <laughs> it's true though. It's true. <laughs> um, and I haven't a lot, I don't like Chinese buffets, so that was not helpful to me. Um, so we just had to go where we were very clearly just tolerated. Right. Um, we went to a, an, an Italian place. The food was decent. Um, but there were no black people in there. There were no black people working there. And um, it was just clear like we were tolerated. He was not, the server was not comfortable, but he wasn't rude. Um, Cause I have had servers that were rude and could not get away from us fast enough. Like hurry up and tell me what you want so I can leave this table and never come back and look at you people. Um, so, I mean, it's gotten better. Do you know what I'm saying? But yeah. you know, I remember like probably less than 10 years ago, we went to an Irish pub and we were seated and nobody would wait on us. And I mean, like the server literally came three, four times, talked to the table next to us, turned their back to us, never looked at us or acknowledged us. Um, Roadhouse, went there once with my husband, same thing, never gone back. I don't go to like barbecue type places. We went to one once and everybody got up and left. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> we, I had a previous podcast guest <laughs> 
who she said she went, um, Reese, she said, and I'll link hers up in the show notes. She said she went into a restaurant and it was one like seat yourself. She sat down, mm-hmm. sat there for an hour and nobody waited on her. Not a single person said anything to her at all. And finally she flagged down the waitress and she was like, what is going on? And the waitress is like, oh, we're really busy. She's like, no, there's a table next to me that came in, ate and left and nobody's been here to like serve me. And the waitress just walked off. So Reese's like, okay, well, I guess I have my answer that I'm not welcome here. Pull out your phone and write a review. I do it before I leave the place and always every single time someone tries to stop me and apologize. It's like, too late. I'm already on it. Right. And I love it. I love to say, I'm happy to say all of those businesses are out of business. Not one of them survived. I would say within a year of our experience, and I'm not going to say my review did it, right. um, but it certainly didn't help um, because those are some of my most um, helpful, helpfully rated reviews on TripAdvisor. Um, so I don't write reviews a lot, but, um, yeah, I will write them about that. I mean, when I have a really great experience, I will also write that. Right. I will write it for really great experiences. I'll write it for like really bad experiences, but I don't even like, if it's a mediocre, I'm just like, (laughs) and I don't say that it was racist. I don't say, I don't say, I never say that they were racist. What right. I express, I describe what happened. And I mentioned that my husband and I happened to be an interracial couple and that, you know, this is what happened. The server came, she checked on the table next to us, you know, three, four times, never even looked at us. Nobody said anything until they saw me working on this review as we walked out. So what made you, is it your experience that made you decide to go into the racist or racist? Yeah racial justice field. I'm telling it's those races that are um, in my head. I'm telling you, um, because like, <laughs> I feel like the, the internet has allowed them the opportunity to come out. Like you said earlier, like they won't say it to your face most of the time, but the internet has allowed them the shield where they will say things they wouldn't normally say in person. And I've had to delete so many people off of social media in the last year it is ridiculous because the people the nicest people in the freaking world i thought would never ever be like that and then these these people are posting the most like (laughs) bigoted shit not even just racist but homophobic transphobic (laughs) all the things and i'm just all the isms all the isms i'm like i grew up with you i thought you were a nice person and you know at first i will I won't challenge them, I guess is the right word, but I will pretend like, I think that they didn't mean what they said. Right. And I'll be like, (laughs) Hey, yeah, give them the benefit of the doubt. Hey, this is how I took your post. Um, this is my, you know, this is what's really that means, or this is what's really going on and wait to see what they say. 99% of the time I was not wrong. (laughs) And I just, and their response is always to like attack me or call me a name or call people like me a name. So they won't come out and be like, you're a whatever, but they'll be like, people who think this are a whatever. I'm like, well, but I think that. So (laughs) I'm, I'm what you're saying you, I am. Okay. I get it. And then I just delete them. Cause I'm like, if you don't even want to learn, 
You don't even want to open your mind. I'm done. I'm done. So anyways, um, have your experiences um, inspired you to get into this field? Absolutely. When I started um, with Empowered Innovation, um, I was really looking at, because it's really based on transforming any general challenge, like any challenge, whatever it is, into a launch pad. And because racism is one I've had to deal with my whole life, um, and because of what I do and maybe just who I am and my experience, I had some um, specific sorts of insights about that that I felt like were practical, but that I didn't hear being discussed. And I would just fall into these conversations with people like in the cell phone store or wherever. And people like, man, are you on TikTok? You should get on TikTok. Are you on Instagram? You should talk about this on Instagram. <laughs> and um, I suppose that, uh, you know, from because I homeschooled my kids and there was so much stuff that I had to learn myself to be right. able to do that, um, I maybe have like a grasp of history that a lot of people don't have. And, um, and I taught my kids history. I did not teach them history the way I learned it, which was that colonialism, <laughs> right? That colonialism <laughs> was the center and the beginning of history. We started with indigenous people um, in Africa and we did this sort of like global, you know, indigenous people, what was happening at certain periods of history around right. the world, kind of the way you would think history would work if we're talking chronological history. So yeah. we actually, that was how we did it. And so I had to learn a lot more. And so in particular, of course, about American history and looking at the history of America through the Native American, you know, and the indigenous oh, lands so um, is also a very different experience. And then, you know, one of the things that doesn't get talked about, we're not going to go deep into it, but there's a complicated history with slavery and, and Native Americans. Um, and the Cherokee tribe has just recently um, acknowledged uh, the the people who were enslaved, the descendants of their, their slaves as members of their community, which is a big thing. That's yeah. a big healing step. Um, because I think that that has prevented maybe some, some unification that mm -hmm. could happen. But I also think there has been an intentional, um, at a policy level to like keep us kind of like right. not at each other instead of like really well, coming and, together. And there's a big, um, a big, like Native Americans and, and Black people tend to like have more relations, like where I live at least, or maybe I'm saying it wrong, um, where I li live at least, I live right near um, a reservation. A lot, there's a lot of interracial uh, marriages between Native Americans and Black people. So you- well, So it used to be that from way back, some tribes would acknowledge and accept them. Some tribes did not. Gotcha. And so um, when the whole slavery thing was unfolding, some people sided with the European colonists and embraced slavery and the enslavement of black people participated in the sale and enslavement of black people. And some people did not and became refuges. It took in escaped slaves. Um, so that's what I say when I, there's a complicated history there. That is a complicated um, history. And plus you got to think these are two communities of people who, white settlers made to be enemies right because they were like right. well if they're focused on this community then they won't be focused on us <laughs> well and then you just see that um and i i'm sure this i, I know that this is an issue i'm not like deeply in, ingrained in, in 
those discussions, but I have done a little bit of work with indigenous and Native American communities, both in North America and in Canada. And um, one of the things that I, I think that would be of great benefit is just like more of a unification of black indigenous people of color, um, kind of coming together with white allies. Because I think that there are some people who just happen to be white and there are some people who are truly white. Like their identity is invested in yes. a narrative of whiteness. I know exactly that what is you're connected talking about. To, mm -hmm. And that is what the culture of white supremacy is based on. Um, but because everybody's been kind of like in this like toxic, corrupt, you know, system and water, we all have ingested a bit of the poison. We all got to do that work. And so I, you know, help them to see race differently and that race isn't a real thing. There's a human race and race was created for a particular purpose mm -hmm. at a particular point in time and history. And then a narrative was built upon that to try and, you know, justify it, um, to legitimize it as the basis of policy making. So, um, but again, a lot of people, I didn't realize how many people don't know any of that stuff. Right. We um, weren't taught it in school. I was talking about um, this with my husband last night. I was like, history I was taught in school was sugar-coated. Like we were taught how bad things happened. And I put that in air quotes, nobody could see me. Um, but it was <laughs> like, the way they put it was like, oh, that's bad. But it, it's, it wasn't that bad. You know what I mean? Like, and it was never like that here. Right. You know, and I then, think everybody got a version of, it wasn't like that here. Here, everybody got along. Yeah. And then I went to college and took college history class and was like, oh crap. I didn't even know half of that stuff happened. And now I continue to educate myself and I'm continually horrified. And then my kids will come home with like some kind of bullshit that their teachers taught that I'm like, no, Christopher Columbus murdered Native Americans. <laughs> like I will go off. Like I will go off at the stuff my kids come home with. I'm like, listen, I'm going to teach you the real stuff. Like, no, Christopher Columbus is not a good guy. <laughs> he murdered and raped indigenous people. Like we are not even playing here. Like you could tell your teacher that too. <laughs> and then some people would get upset that, right. you know, that, but if you want to remember him, you can remember him, but remember him for the truth. Right. You know what I mean? And you can give him credit if you want that. Like, well, would we be here without what he did? Maybe, maybe know. not. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I don't particularly feel the need to honor Christopher Columbus. No. But if somebody else wants to, it's like, you know, that's your business. You know, don't put it in my face. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just that kind of integrating all of that. Like what's happening now with the voter suppression stuff? Um, again, not new. Um, White Rage by Dr. Carol Anderson, great book that like, you know, gives you the play by play of that after the end of the Civil War with how these kinds of policies were the, the reaction to any mm -hmm. sort of progress. And this has been our history, but this is a chance for us to do something different, to do it better. And um, that was what fundamentally made me like commit to getting the book done um, was this will be my contribution. If there's anybody out there in the world that actually really wants this, that wants to understand um, what the cure is, and it's not like a one and done kind of thing, right. but it's like, this is it. You know, if you want it, this is, this is, I, I compared it to um, in sourdough bread, when you're bread baking, you need the starter. 
Right. That this is like the equivalent of the starter. Gotcha. Um, and so the idea is like, we want to create the perfect loaf of bread for you, Megan. So, you know, like your process is what reveals, you know what I'm saying? Like what, yeah. that, what the ingredients are. So I call it like my success buffet. And I kind of introduce people to like, kind of, I gave them like a, a overview of my story. And um, my husband and I were featured in an article about love at first sight um, in the Wall Street Journal. And that happened around that same time that I was working um, to help him to apartheid and pressuring American companies to divest from apartheid South Africa in, I guess it was like 1989. And here we are again, pressuring companies to help, you know, um, keep, it's not quite apartheid, but um, Jim Crow 2.0 um, yeah. from taking hold in America. So there's a little bit of a full circle thing. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> you can edit that out. Um, <laughs> um, so there's like a little bit of a full circle moment with doing the cure for racism now um, at this point in my life, because, you know, it has, it's been a while and I've been talking to young people about what it takes to stay in this mm -hmm. um, because you will be, see so much disappointment and have your heart broken so many times that you have to find a way to keep getting back up, to keep, and that's what the system grew out of. That's, you know, I worked with a coach to help me distill it into a system that was teachable, but this was, that's what this came from. So my, from my first experience with racism, that sort of, um, I think really oriented me towards being a self-educated person and learning better um, on my own. Um, just a whole lot of things that oriented me towards freedom and empowerment. Um, Cause that was sort of my innate response to uh, that. I, I saw modeled by my mother, you know, um, who advocated for me. Um, you know, she would go when I, we were kids, she worked in a factory. And so she would go after work to the library and look up, you know, county statutes, county and state statutes and contrast those with like federal statutes and, um, you know, find where they were in violation. Um, and she would put together her case, you know, <laughs> of how they were violating, you know, my civil rights and what have you. And, you know, the statutes that would apply to the specific type of discrimination. So when she came in um, and said, like, we can either like deal with this now as adults or um, we can get attorneys and the superintendent involved. And um, yeah, it was like, you know, wasn't a lot of like yelling and, you know, like, name calling or anything it's like here are the facts and she would also go to teachers and other witnesses and get statements oh my god I um, love your mom and corroborating <laughs> evidence um I had a teacher who was grading my 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 tests really severely but people who gave less complete answers had higher grades my mother told me it's like get get them to get copies get get them to let you get their test and make a copy and most of them didn't even want it back they're like you can just have it um, so my mother, like, she would have evidence and, um, oh yeah. Um, so, you know what I mean? So it's like yeah. that, seeing that example really taught me something. Although I think that I am probably even more aggressive than my mother is. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Um, I lack her patience. What can I say? And also my mother grew up under segregation. So her, you know, her whole thing and experience with white people is totally different from mine. Um, 
and um, and those systems, you know, like going right. up against those systems. And so, you know, her way of navigating them is a little bit different, whereas, um, you know, I come from a different time. Um, and I think the young people now, even that's probably why I probably relate a bit more. I'm telling with, you, um, <laughs> Gen Z is going to save us all. Those kids are so on it. Not all of them. There's some that are indoctrinated with their Kool-Aid drinking parents. But anyways, they're, I, my daughter, she's Gen Z. Well, all my kids are Gen Z, but they're so in tune. And I think it's because they have access to the internet and they have access to all these stories and learning from other people and seeing all these different cultures and um, that they learn and they're so aware and they, and they, they're so empathetic and they're willing to call everybody out, racist grandma, like insurrectionist dad, they don't care. Everybody's going down because these kids don't play. They're like, this is not okay. And I love them so much. I love them. Don't you think part of it is that they haven't grown up with the delusion that adults are going to save them or look out for their interests. Right. One of the things that absolutely broke my heart, I mean, like literally made me cry um, one of the short films in the film festival was a student about students, how they have adapted to school shootings, the normalization yeah. of school shootings. And that is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Like they feel abandoned. They do not have the delusion that adults are going to protect them, um, that adults are going to put their interests first, that they are really even important in the policy making and business of adults and government. And so, um, oh my God, that just like, it broke my heart. Like it yeah. really, really broke my heart. And um, one of the, 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 the slides, the carousel uh, that my guy's working on put to post on Instagram was somewhat about that, like kind of like speaking to, um, We've got to look for where the where we have power. We have got to look for where the power is. And then for these young people who do want to do something, helping them understand that um, what the playbook has been and how to think more strategically and understand the real game being played. Don't, you know, and so that's a bit of what I talk to my team and my mentee, my mentees, I guess they would be about is like, um, it's kind of like when you're doing applying for a job or something and right. you go to the company's website, right. And you read their mission statement and all the stuff they say, has that ever been your experience working for a company, Megan? No, no. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> right. I think that so, changed so much. Like I, I, I just, I, I just, it's, it's changed so much. It really has. <laughs> in a good way what do you mean some good some bad like you know I <laughs> some of it I think is like all this access to information can be really good and can really help but then also have like this it's a double-edged sword like well QAnon right yeah oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so speaking of that my 18 year old uh is not my husband's biological daughter so okay. we're talking about her biological dad um right now okay so he is um he is the stereotypical maga <laughs> oh wow and um her and i decided last year to delete him off social media we're like we're not doing this we're taking a stand 
And my sister kept him because my sister never deletes anybody off social media. <laughs> she just likes to screw with everybody. So, she, you know, she kept him and she posted something and he commented, thank God you're not like my daughter and her mother deleting me off Facebook because I'm an anti-masker. And I was like, whoa, that's not why I deleted you off social media. <laughs> and her and I, we were like, listen, you're racist, transphobic, homophobic. We're just like naming it all out. And I was like, those might be the reasons I deleted you off social media. I mean, the fact that you're an anti-masker definitely does not help your case. But, (laughs) and my daughter, I'm so proud of her because she like, she stood up for herself and she was just like, I don't think this is acceptable. And I don't care if you're my dad, you don't have the right to say these things. And I was like, yes, that's my girl. Wow. You know, and so like, yes, you have these homegrown terrorists, but then you also have like, that's the negative side, but then you have these young people who are like, no, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Not okay. So yes, the internet. I'm amazed at how how many young people are surprised at the stories that I tell. They they can't believe um, that like, what? Um, um, there's an article where I share what happened to me in kindergarten and how like at kindergarten, I was ready to drop out of high school. Oh my God. Um, right. Um, yeah. So it's like, and they can't believe like, yeah. And you know, there was, uh, that and worse probably happened to a lot of people who didn't have mothers that advocated for them. Um, yeah, I was like, uh, selected for like the gifted program and, um, she didn't think which what I overheard her say was that the space should be used for somebody who would make better use of it. And then she made a comment about my address um, to this teacher's aide. And so um, when my mother went to the principal and at this point, um, my county was like maybe only five years into integration. Mind you, Brown versus Board of Education was 1950. This was 1975, okay? So the schools in Pitt County did not integrate until 1970. That's 20 years after the Board of Education, the Brown versus Board of Education. Um, And one of the things you had happen in the South was many schools shut down rather than integrate. And um, I think that what we're seeing now is, is a similar mentality. Rather than investing in the public good and what's good for all, um, they'd rather just like cut it all off and have everybody starve, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like rather than integrate the pools, they filled in city pools, like, you know, filled in the cement and just closed them all down and closed down schools for a year or whatever. So it's kind of like the something similar. So I see like that kind of progress. So anyway, the, the story, what the, the resolution in that story was um, the teacher's aide or student teacher, whatever she was, the teacher's aide, she would just work with me separately in the back of the room because um, the part, issue was just that I could already read. And like, I could count and do a little bit of math and do my shapes and stuff. And they're doing like sounding out, ooh, ah, you know, vowels and shit. And it's like, um, dude, you know, um, and she was, she would punish me. Um, And so I just became this target. Like other people would lie and say that I did things that I had done. And so she would paddle me Um, and she would just take opportunities to humiliate me. If I had to go to the bathroom, she wouldn't let me go. And I peed on myself once. And so my mother was furious. 
And my mother said after that, if you have to go, no matter what she says, just get up and go, which is what I did. And so then she paddled me and I left her room. I went to the principal's office. And I said, call my mother. And um, they did. And that was when it all kind of came to a head. And, um, but she was married to a very prominent family in town and mm. um, sort of allowed to be, a, anyway, she had a job of the hut vibe. That's all I'll say. Um, <laughs> oh, Java. <laughs> um, and this is not about fat shaming it's not that I mean right. like the vibe the vibe of job she happened to be fat but she had that like she would make people come and brush her hair so the teacher's pet would be the person that can brush her hair you know what I'm saying right. and the power sort of play that job right yeah. um and playing little five little kids usually like kindergartens playing against each other and it's like oh well since you like got somebody in trouble you can come and brush my hair today and because she was fat when I saw Jabba the Hutt, like ages later, that way he was just sort of sitting there and had the slave girl on the chain and yanking her back. It just reminded me of my kindergarten teacher. You know, Patricia Menjis, wherever you are. Um, <laughs> you just got called out. <laughs> I'm sorry, she changed her name to Tucker because she did get divorced. Patricia Tucker. Oh my. Um, yeah. Um, so that just sort of put me on. I didn't really care for school much after that. Um, I had like better teachers after her, but I think at third grade, I had another one who was really awful and um, would like throw my work away and make me do it again. And uh, you know, like, there's no way you got all these answers right and throw it away and make me do it again. Um, so yeah, anyway, so you know what I'm saying? Like those yeah. kinds of things. These, what do they call them? Microaggressions. They're little um, paper yeah. cuts. They feel like a big deal though to a child because yeah. I mean, well, you think yeah. about like if you did your work in class and you're looking forward to recess and then you don't get to go out to recess because somebody says like, there's no way that you did this work and did it mm -hmm. right. You must've cheated. And I would have to stay in a recess. And so this went on for a while. And then I told my mom and then she'd like said, I, I had missed all this work and she wrote it out and my mom signed off on it. I had to stay in all weekend, you know, and catch up all this stuff. Well, when I turned it in, she wrote a note again, telling my mother, I didn't turn everything in. And my mother knew that I had, cause she had checked every bit of it. Um, and this white girl who was, for some reason, she was upset that I had a, a, a white best friend. And we were just like, you know, you know, like when you're nine, you know what I mean? Right. She's like my best friend. Um, and she just, it, it bothered her for whatever reason, but Nicole was my witness. Like she saw her throw my work in the trash. Um, and so, you know, my mother threatened to slap the wrinkles off of her finally. <laughs> it got bad. I remember in kindergarten, I had a black best friend and I wasn't aware of racism, even though my parents were racist. And I only realized that when I became an adult, um, just because of the things they said. Um, but anyways, I, they never told me I couldn't have my black friend. So they weren't like, they were racist, but not to racist to that extent, if that makes sense. Like on the okay, racist yeah, yeah. spectrum. There's degrees of racism. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. but I remember bringing my black, we lived in this house and it had three floors and each floor had an apartment. Mm -hmm. And then the bottom floor, the owner, the landlords lived and we lived on the second floor and there was this another couple on the third floor. And I brought my black friend into the house, like into the hallway where you would go to the different floors. And my friend, Megan, I'm Megan. She was Megan. We were the M&M twins, um, <laughs> was sitting there. And I was like, do you want to come play? And Megan goes, no. And I was like, why not? And she was like, I can't play with her. 
And I was like, what do you mean you can't play with her? And she's like, I can't play with her. So I went out and played with my friend and Megan was mad at me because I chose to play with my friend. And I went upstairs and I was really confused. I was like five, six years old. And I said to my mom, I said, Megan said she couldn't play. I don't remember what the little girl's name was. I don't remember Megan because my mom called us the M&M twins. Um, (laughs) But like I said, Megan said she can't play with her. And my mom goes, yeah, that's because she's black. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she was like, yeah, Megan can't play with her because she's she's black. She's not allowed to play with black people. And I was like, what the hell? And I was confused because my mom didn't explain racism. She didn't explain why. She didn't explain what was wrong. She was just like, yeah, Megan can't play with her because she's black. And I I didn't understand it. But now as an adult, I'm like, <coughs> that message that was such a huge message, you know? And it's kind of like when you're talking about you and your white best friend, like that sent a message to her. Like the teacher didn't do that to her. The teacher was doing that to you. And even as little kids, even though we don't understand it, we kind of understand it. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Even if we don't have a name for it, we understand. I mean, we knew well. that she didn't want us to play together because she would tell Nicole, like, you go outside and I would have to stay in. Right. And when Nicole would want to stay and wait for me, she wouldn't allow it. Um, so that was, you know, that, that, that was interesting. Um, but then, you know, I had some, I remember I had Miss Jennifer Wellens and I had Susan Harris right before second grade. And then, you know, skip forward, uh, I think sixth grade was Jennifer Wellens. They were two of the best teachers I ever had. And I loved them. I absolutely loved them. When I ran into them as adults, I would always like tell, tell them hello. And I would thank them for the equality I got to experience in their classroom and their protection of us as girls. Cause I was developing, I, you know, sprouted kind of early. Um, you know, I started wearing a bra, I think at like nine or something like that. And I got my period at 10. So, you know, it was sort of developing, but she right. protected us and boys were inappropriate. She punished them. She did not allow it. She made it very clear that that sort of behavior wasn't allowed. Um, I didn't feel like I, I was going to be penalized for being smart in their classes. Um, yeah, so like I remember always being like, uh, so it didn't make me think that all white people were bad, you know? Right. Um, I definitely didn't have that. But I do remember like when we were talking about Nicole, my grandmother didn't like Nicole either. Nicole and I met in like kindergarten. Um, it's me, her, and Shannon Foley. I ran into Shannon Foley like about 10 years ago at Sam's. Um, <laughs> at Sam's Club. Um, we shared a boyfriend in kindergarten. <laughs> oh, so insane. <laughs> so that was a thing we did as little girls. Um, so Nicole, my grandmother was not thrilled about that. And she didn't like it. And um, she didn't believe, believe in crossing those kinds of lines. But for so I guess I, I had a little bit more sympathy for her as I've gotten older because she was born in North, South Carolina in the 20s. Yeah. And um, even today, I say South Carolina is the most racist place I've ever been to. Um, it's not like my favorite place to go. I still have family there, but I don't spend much time when I go through. It's like, I'll stop and see you for lunch. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I got a gal, um, because I, it rubs off, it rubs off on me. And I, I, I become a little more hateful, honestly, I think I become a little bit more, I get infected by the hate. 
Um, and I get a little bit more aggressive and no, the world does not need that. You know, that's right. not what any of us need. So, um, of course I won't say I always get aggressive, but it's just like little, like micro things. It's not like I'm not attacking people or anything, but it's just like in a store, instead of saying like, excuse me, I'll just like bump into people. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I bump into them as I'm saying, excuse me, which is really more like a get out of the way I'm yeah. coming through. Um, just because my experience there has been 97% of the time, a white person will not move when you say, excuse me. Um, but if you bump them with your cart, as you're saying, excuse me, and push your way through as if, if you don't get out of the fuck out of my way, I'm going to run over you. Um, and it's just like little things. Like if I'm coming down an aisle, um, I've had these encounters with like men where, um, you can tell like there's just something in their energy like they're not going to step aside for me to get by and it's like well I'm not fucking moving either so I guess we're going to throw down here you know in the aisle in this gas station or whatever um, yeah and usually at the last minute you know I look around and realize like oh I'm the only black person in here um, maybe we will not be having a Sophie color black color purple moment today um, and I just kind of turn sideways and, you know, decided well, there will not be a fight today. Um, but there have been a couple of times when I've done the shoulder bump, you know, I've done the shoulder bump and kind of done my first, my, my best football player shoulder bump, you know, pretended I had on shoulder pads and try and knock them the fuck out of the way. Um, but that has been rare and it's been a really long time. We all have our journey, you know? <laughs> Um, so we have our journey as we wrap up the podcast, cause we definitely went over time. I'm like, I could oh stay here God. and talk to you forever. <laughs> um, cause I know you have like 10,000 other stories you could share with us <laughs> and tell people like, this is what it's like in America. Um, yeah. <laughs> America. <laughs> so, what would you what, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? And make sure to mention what we were talking about before we we hopped on. Yes. yes. Okay. That's what I would like to leave people with. So okay. the, the point of all of these stories is that these are all the things that kind of shaped me towards empowerment. I think, and um, and because my family, I come from laborers. My my grandfather was a cook, and and that whole thing. My my other grandfather was a porter on on the train, and so I have real empathy with with workers. And I have been thinking about, because the, a cure for racism um, isn't just about racism. We're focusing on racism. But if you address racism, you address all the isms. You know what I mean? All the isms, the, the, the victims of the isms benefit if we address that. It's kind of like, if you address the issues affecting Black people, you're kind of addressing the issues affecting all poor working people. Um, so life gets better for a whole lot of other people. Um, there's a great book called The Miner's Canary by Lonnie Guineer and Eric Torres that makes a really good case for that, um, just if anybody cares. Um, and also, what is it? Um, oh gosh, it's like the real cost of racism. Um, this is us or uh, something like that. Okay, and I cannot remember the author's name, but uh, look for the subtitle, The Real Cost of Racism. Um, or what racism costs white people or something along those lines. Okay, so um, I have been thinking about how as consumers, we how we can use consumers who are customers, how we can leverage our power 
to support the workers, of the Amazon workers. And just recently, the union um, efforts in Alabama were voted down, um, although they've been writing about the atrocious conditions of the workers for a long time. Many of us are still Amazon customers. I'm gonna go a step further and say, we may be Amazon addicted. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So what I was talking with Megan about was, I think maybe we need to start some sort of support group um, so that either Amazon needs to get right. Um, and as we are making these demands, we need to form a support group to support each other and a sort of Amazon detox uh, because it may be necessary to boycott Amazon. And right now they are banking on our dependency, our addiction. Um, and so I think that maybe we need to start a self-help group to a support group to, to help each other and to help, you know, people who know where to find things can help others, you know, who need those things to find them from other places other than Amazon and support, you know, small businesses who are socially conscious, support social justice, um, making people more aware of those small businesses. Um, I'd love to have some of them on my podcast, of course, but I want to um, find out like if anybody's interested in that, hit me up on Instagram and let's get a support group started. Let's start detoxing from Amazon, demand that they do better by their workers. Let's stand in solidarity with them and make them legit earn those dollars. Because if the person at the top has more money than he can spend in a lifetime, what kind of greedy motherfucker is not willing to give up a little bit of money to help everybody else? Um, that needs to be called out. Yeah. So um, that's my, <laughs> that's Amen. my spiel. <laughs> Amen. All right. So Hallelujah. thank you so much. <laughs> I'm not um, even religious. And I'm like, yes. Right. Amen. I have those moments too. Right. <laughs> I, what um, else is a better word? <laughs> um, well, I, I listened to Jennifer Lewis's memoir a few months ago and it just, um, I, I worked with an acting coach a little bit and a makeup artist to come up with like this persona based on my version, my embodiment of Jennifer Lewis, RuPaul and Oprah and Janelle Monet. Ooh, that's I downloaded their essence, right? Um, mm. So I downloaded that essence. But Jennifer Lewis seems to be like, she sits just right here in my heart. I, I feel like I, I understand her. I get her. I love her strength. I love that she shared that it comes from vulnerability. And my vulnerabilities, I am fighting for hope. Like I want to believe that all of this is going to amount to something. And um yeah, so thank you for having me on, well, Megan. Yeah, uh, thank you so you're much one of those for coming people. on the podcast today. I love chatting with you. Thank you for being, you know, giving some hope, you know? Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.